Hi everyone and welcome to the Paramount Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you all here again. I'm really glad to have you all here. Uh, and uh, today I have a new guest on the show, um, a good friend of mine from Twitter uh, and somebody I've, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to. Um, so um, Amber Kay, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, James. It's really great to be here. Um, I've actually never done a podcast before, so this will be a really fun and interesting experience for me, I think. Ah, awesome. I've had actually a lot of people that I've had on the show, it's their first, it's been their first podcast that they've done. And some of them have gone on to do like bigger podcasts and some of them just, just came back here. Like (laughs) it just depends on who it is, but like, so, uh, Oh, that's nice. Um, so, well, yeah, I'll find, don't worry. It's This is completely, you can make mistakes here. It's totally fine. It's totally informal on this podcast. So <laughs> um, I, I tried to keep it informal. Uh, so, yeah, you're Amber Kay and uh, your pronouns are she, they. And uh, we met through Twitter. And, um, you know, uh, well, I say we have a mutual friend, but. They're more than a friend to you, but um, who was on here before, Ali, mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, and we're going to talk about, we're going to listen to hear your story today. So, welcome to the show. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Just tell us a bit before we get into your story. Just tell us a bit about yourself. So, I am thirty-one years old. Um, I have lived in the United States for most of my life. Um, When I was much younger, my father was in the military, and so we moved around quite a bit, um, mostly in the southern states, so mostly like Texas and Mississippi and Alabama and and that area down there. And then ultimately, we moved up to Missouri to be closer to my uh, mother's side of the family. Um, And they were very, they're a very evangelical group. Um, very into that sort of thing. And so I really hadn't experienced organized religion until we moved back to Missouri when I was probably six. Um, And so it was a very rough transition for me because I was like, this is actually really weird. And I don't like any of this. You know, I didn't like the clothes that I had to wear. I didn't like the really long church services and everything. Um, And that's really when I first started acting out a lot. Um, And when I first, I first started noticing that maybe I was, I was different from, from other people, you know, behaviorally, because, you know, everybody else can sit through church and I'm just like, no, I couldn't do it. Um, So there was that, um, Around the age of 11 or 12, I started having epileptic seizures, Um, but we didn't know that that's what they were. Um, A lot of the doctors around here said that it was a a women's issue. You know, they're just like, you're coming of age and some women, you know, pass out. That's just a thing that happens. And I was kind of like, you know, my, my parents definitely didn't like that as an answer because it sounded very nondescript. You know, it, it felt very minimizing uh, to the, the seizures that I was having that they could see and that they could witness. 
Um, especially since sometimes they, they were very dangerous. Like I had a seizure while I was swimming. Um, and a cousin of mine had to like drag me out of the lake because I was in, in essence drowning, you know? So it was a very dangerous time for me while I was undiagnosed. Mm. Um, so that was honestly one of the things that has consistently just held me back the most because I didn't get a diagnosis. We didn't find um, something that worked until I was in my early 20s. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was it was very scary. It was scary not knowing what was wrong, mm. you know, or, or why I was having these symptoms. But it was definitely something that was pervasive and caused caused significant issues. Mm. Wow. I, I got done. I was I started having seizures when I was nine years old. Um I got diagnosed fortunately I got diagnosed relatively quickly. Um and on medication relatively quickly. Although it took a long time for me to find medication that got it under control. <laughs> Like yeah, I mean like you know, I still I was still having seizures all even though I was on medication. So I I understand that. That you know, it's 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 scary, you know. I don't think I realised how scary it was at the time. I just got on with it. Um I didn't really think about it as much because I was going through a childhood trauma anyway, so I had other things going on. But but yeah, that is a scary thing, you know, especially when it's not even diagnosed. Um mm-hmm. And that's awful. That's a long time to get a diagnosis as well. Like, yeah. I definitely think medical care in this area is not great. Um, mm. And there's also such a massive influence of like evangelical culture and just the, mm. the way that they view, you know, womanhood and femininity to the point where they they would brush things off a lot, you know, whereas, you know, maybe if, cause I had male cousins that got diagnosed with epilepsy and then ultimately were diagnosed with autism as well. And so they have a diagnosis, but for me, it was, it was brushed off. And so I wonder to what extent that may have had an effect. Wow. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm glad you got a diagnosis in the end, though. Yes, um, we just we had to go into a bigger a bigger city, um, and it was really by chance. I just I had I had a seizure and it was icy out, and so I slipped and dislocated my shoulder. Um, mm. And they took me into the hospital, and I'm telling this doctor in the hospital you know, what happened. And he's like, cause I, I went in for the shoulder. I'm like, my shoulder's dislocated. You know, I'm in pain. I need something for this. And he's like, let's take a couple of steps back. And I want you to explain to me again, the episode you called it before you slipped and yeah. fell. And so I explained it to him. And he's like, that's a seizure. And I was like, oh, well, thank you for like giving it a name. And then almost immediately he uh, referred me to a neurologist who then started trying different medication uh, for me. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got. The, I'm glad you got the diagnosis in the end. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It was it. 
it made such a significant change in my life, in my independence and mobility um, to have just even a name for what I was experiencing and having, you know, set things I could tell people and explain my needs, you know, whereas before it's just like, I kind of have the dropsies, you know, that's what my grandma called it. She's like, you've got the dropsies and sometimes you just, you know, and so like, you can't, you can't be like, yeah, I just like lose consciousness sometimes. Like it's Mm. a thing that happens where if you're like, I have epilepsy, I have seizures. A lot of times they're associated with specific stimuli that creates mm-hmm. a parameter where you can manage your life. Yeah. 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 Well, I haven't had a seizure for eight years now, maybe. Um, you know, which I'm, I feel very fortunate. <laughs> you know, I used to yeah. have them all the time. I used to have them every mm-hmm. couple of months. You know, it was, uh, and then it just stopped. Uh, for some reason, I don't know why. <laughs> I can't explain it, but uh, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's scary, you know. Like, I mean, I was, I I only realised at thirty eight that, that there's this thing called sudden death through epilepsy. Like, then that I could, if I had one, if I had a certain kind of seizure, I could just go and like. But I found out also that after forty, it's like. There's like almost zero percent chance of that happening. Like I've never had anyone. That's never happened to anyone over forty. So once you get to forty, mm-hmm. you're right. Once I got to forty, I was like, yes, I can't die of epilepsy anymore. <laughs> like you know, it was. Um, but it's. I mean, it's like it's not. Very, it doesn't happen very often anyway. But um, it was. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just. It's just. Because like when you wake, like I mean, you know what probably what this is like. But when you wake up somewhere, you don't know how you got there. Like you know. And, you know, I'm, I think I oh, I had a I had a seizure at a bus stop once, and the gravel was kind of un, uneven on the bus stop, and I hit my head right on the where the uneven gravel was. Like, so I had blood all over my face. I ended up going to hospital and stuff. Uh, yeah, I've had I've got some incredible I've got some crazy stories. Once I fell on the railway tracks when the train was coming. Yeah, and I woke up in the ambulance. And I had no idea what had happened, and. They told me that uh, that two people had jumped on the railway tracks and taken me off the track. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they did it because the train was literally coming, apparently. And uh, it was like literally two or three minutes away. And, uh, yeah, and kind of basically saved my life, you know. And um, I was 22 when that happened. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, crazy. <laughs> but that's that's just one of many stories that I have. Some of them are quite funny in hindsight. But uh but yeah, yeah. Um Yeah. One time I had a seizure during the fourth of July and I had like a like a rocket like firecracker in my hand type thing. And so I guess when the seizure I like shot it at one of my cousins. And in retrospect no. it's funny because nothing bad happened. But yeah. yeah, I guess they're just like, you know, you're just going to kill me, you know, passing out, you're <laughs> shooting, shooting yeah. fireworks at me. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, it's so, yeah, there's some funny stories. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's good to actually share that with somebody else who's epileptic because I've never actually got had a chance to do that before. Um, so, but, and yeah. then, but then yeah. kind of this, like this, like you talk about, 
a diagnosis of autism as well. Like, because um, I'm on the spectrum, although I'm not officially diagnosed, but I'm kind of self-diagnosed. Um, I'm working on getting a, a formal diagnosis at the moment. Uh, and I think you're on the spectrum as well. Is that that right? Yes. And I've never been formally diagnosed either. Uh, but just as I was growing up, growing up around other people who were being diagnosed, um, I remember my my earliest realization is when I have a cousin who's about 10 years younger than me. Um, and I was a pretty significant caretaker for him. I was around him very regularly. Um, mm. and I thought, I'm like, this is a perfectly, you know, this is, this is what babies in our family act like. It's not a big, you know, I didn't see anything off or unusual mm. because I'm like, this is perfectly normal behavior that this child is exhibiting. Um, and then he got sent to preschool, um, and almost immediately they started like doing assessments and eventually diagnosed him with autism. And I'm like, no, like he, he's not autistic. He can't have autism because that would mean that. And then I was like, Oh, okay. All right. That's clicking. Um, like, cause I was, I was probably, yeah, like 16 or 17 by this point. And I was just like, Oh, well that actually explains a lot then. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so he did give me kind of an excuse for why all of a sudden, like I was just reading up on like autism symptoms and like, you know, necessary like accommodations and what meltdowns look like. Cause they're like, Oh, you're just so concerned about your baby cousin. And I'm like, no bitch. Like this is about me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm also <laughs> concerned for the child, but like, I'm like, yeah, having yeah. like yeah. A, a realization here of essentially something that explains my entire life to me, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah. No. I mean, there oh. is kind of a tie between epilepsy and uh, being on the spectrum as well. Like, it's uh, there is, yeah. Some people both have both have both. Um, it's not always the same, but um, I've noticed that a lot of epileptic people that I know also on the spectrum. So, yeah, like how? So, how did like kind of that realization impact your kind of personal journey and kind of discovering discovering who you were? I definitely think that it helped a lot um, because at that point in time, I was having significant, like significant difficulty with uh, school. I had been homeschooled up to that point. Um, and even though, you know, I was in a fairly controlled environment, you know, like when I was doing my schoolwork, anytime we went out, you know, I would be so incredibly overwhelmed. Um, and I just wouldn't, you know, I would, I would watch the rest of my family interact with other people. And I always kind of felt like I was a, like I was a mimic, um, or like I was somebody who really didn't fit in. Like I was repeating things that they would say, but I didn't really like fully understand like why I was saying those things or, or sometimes even like 
what the process was for different social interactions. So like if I was completely alone, I'm just like staring at people, like having like an internal like panic attack sort of thing of just like, oh my God, I don't, I don't know how to have conversations um, that aren't prompted by someone else or aren't like either scripted or like there's a facilitator of some kind, you know what I mean? Of, of an, of a third person who's able to help kind of guide, guide that conversation for me. Um, And so it, it honestly, it explains so much and it allowed me to give myself a little bit more grace, you know, like not always feel like I'm just deficient in some way, you know, I'm struggling and, you know, it's something that, wrong with me. It's just that I have a different neurological makeup than some of the other people that are around me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. And I, I, that resonates a lot. Before I realized I was on the spectrum, I I always wondered why I struggled in sexual situations and why everyone else just knew how to behave or what was being what people were actually communicating when they said certain things like or like the rules of social interaction and like and I kind of now looking back I kind of basically had to teach them to myself I had to learn like literally learn how to how to do it like so like when I used to be in the church and stuff I and there were people there were people in like little groups talking I would literally be studying or studying the conversation, studying people's reactions to gauge what, how I should react or what I should, whether I should say something or what I should say or how I should say it. I was literally just, I realized I, I literally taught myself how to do this. And it was like, it takes energy to do that as well, which is why those situations were always so draining. Cause I was not mm-hmm. just cause I'm an introvert, um, which doesn't help in terms of energy around social spaces, but, I was actually having to use energy to, to figure out what was going on all the time and just pretend and of course masking, like pretending that I was, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm completely here. I'm fully present. I'm, you know, I know what's going on. I'm, you know, I'm no different to any of you. Like, <laughs> like, uh, cause it takes a lot of energy to do that. Right. And you, you, mm-hmm. you, yeah, you kind of, people don't realize. And of course, if you don't even know you're autistic yourself, which I didn't at the time, it's even worse. Like you think you feel bad about it. Like you feel there's something wrong with you. Well, that's, it's just how your brain works. Absolutely. And I, sometimes I will explain it to people as like, I just, if, if my brain was a computer, there's just an app working in the background that nobody else has. And it's actually like tanking my battery on my computer and it's like, that's, that's the app that is, you know, routing all my social interactions for me, figuring out what's appropriate, what, you know, different thing I should sequence next in, in the pattern. And I'm like, but if that app goes down, the entire system goes down, you know, and that's, that's when I have like a meltdown or I have burnout is when, like, if I don't have that app running, then I'm, I'm kaput. So, yeah, yeah, that that's a really good metaphor. I like that. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Like, yeah, our brains require a, a different app to run, like 
successfully mm-hmm. <laughs> well we have meltdowns yeah mm-hmm. absolutely and you know meltdowns are real uh not nice but yeah yeah that makes so much sense isn't it i mean it's, a, it's an excellent metaphor yeah. like i think i'll use that with my ne- with my nephew because he's uh, on the spectrum too one day I'll, that, yeah. you can use that to explain it to him yeah. uh yeah that's a really good metaphor i like that <laughs> yeah the when i thought of it it was because i had a computer that was going so slow and you know i was like i'm going to have to probably like you know, get rid of this computer. And I ended up doing, you can run an analysis of what apps are taking up like the most energy and like delete them and everything. And then I, I did that and I cleaned up everything that was like running and running in the background. And then it, it started working perfectly. And I was like, for the, for neurotypicals, you know, they don't need all those extra apps. They're like, they're like this computer where if you have too many, you know, it, it clogs everything up. But for us, there's at least one that it's required, but it's taking up the same amount of energy that all of those like unnecessary apps would for like a neurotypical person, you know, of maybe just like having difficulty at work or, you know, having like a death in the family. Like for us, we're kind of on that same level of like, social difficulty all the time I feel like you know it always feels like there's something extra going on where we're we're just at that precipice of like if one more thing goes wrong you know it can kind of push me over so yeah but I I guess you've learned like like all of us have to is to figure out how to get through those moments and how to manage our responses and mm-hmm. all of that kind of thing mm-hmm. that like i mean one of the things that i do like and i don't know is that i i i i you know those days where everything goes wrong and everything's just everything bad that can happen does happen and you just you can have a meltdown easily and you can get triggered easily whatever like and it's just one thing goes wrong and another thing goes wrong and it's like just so I kind of I set this rule in my brain of like one called one of those days. So if I start having a day like that, I'll just decide okay, it's one of those days. <laughs> like, and then under that banner, like anything bad can happen, and it's like, and I and I won't have a meltdown. So like, so once I've realised it's those sort of things are starting to happen, I just change my. It's almost like changing a setting, like in your brain like it's like changing it to oh one of those days right okay so now it's okay i can deal with it like because i'm expecting it because my brain i'm like i've got my brain trained to accept that under certain circumstances like like a autistic rule kind of thing like and doing that has really helped i've done that with i've done i've I've tried to every time i come up with a come, come face to face with a conflict i come up with a different rule like setting I suppose it's a setting on the app, you could call it, like to allow me to manage that situation so I don't have to, like, uh, so I don't have a meltdown and uh, or the meltdown's not as bad. Like, do you have any kind of things that you do to help to help manage those those responses? I think similar to you, like I definitely have like different settings and not just when I'm having like, a bad day, but if I know I'm going to have like a really long, 
a really long day, like I kind of go on energy saver mode where it's just like, I'm going to do the bare minimum. And I know that I have to, if I'm going to make it until, you know, 8 PM, you know, if it's, if it's going to be like a 12 hour day, like I'm going to be taking a lot of breaks and I will even schedule those on my phone of just little reminders. Like it's time to sit down. It's time to go drink water. It's time to do this. Um, so that like I have that on my, on my phone or I even, you know, at work block it off on my calendar, you know, and that's, that's something I make it private. Only I can see that, you know, from somebody on the outside looking at my, my calendar, it just looks like I probably have an appointment or something. Not that this is like my, my water getting time or, um, but something I, I noticed with that is like, um, neurotypical people do that automatically. You know, they have set breaks um, where I'm more inclined to just keep going. You know, I have to keep going and I can't stop until I have a- achieved whatever goal I have. Um, and so within itself, like s- setting breaks, things like that have to become their own goals. Um, and I also have to like, Usually if I, if I know something's going to be especially draining, like setting up an out beforehand, um, which with that, like, you know, it could be a friend, um, usually like whoever's my out, I tell them they're my out. I'm like, you know, it's possible. I'm going to want to leave this event. I'm going to want to do something else. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to possibly text you and then you're, you're going to call me and you're going to like, tell me that I'm supposed to leave. And then. Because for me, like, I feel like, yeah, I feel like most people are able to, like, let themselves out of social situations without making it awkward. And I just, I just can't, you know, and I, I've accepted that about myself. And I think that, you know, just things like that have helped a lot, like recognizing, I guess, when I need to ask for help. Or when I need to create a structure to where I'm able to recognize that I need to help myself. Um, so. Yeah. And that's important, you know, when, when you're on the spectrum and, you know, because we have to, it's, it's important to be aware and what works for us and what doesn't work for us and just accept how, mm-hmm. how our brains work and just okay. learn to, manage that it's like having a relationship with your body you know like mm-hmm. um embodiment is so important you know that you, you get to know your yourself and your body and can manage it well right and uh yeah i know what you mean about the feeling guilty for leaving stuff early socially absolutely <laughs> i struggled with that as well like i i um it doesn't happen as often now because i don't go out as much now but i definitely used to struggle with that a lot that's a that's a that's definitely the thing but i'd always be i'd always be tired like halfway through an evening and want to go home and i thought it's just because i didn't because i didn't enjoy it but it's just because i was using up tons more energy than everybody else <laughs> um and um being highly sensitive as well just absorbing more than everybody else <laughs> so uh yeah yeah it's getting to know yourself uh and so uh you um so you've had this kind of like uh, this story where you've 
experienced epilepsy and you've got epilepsy and autism how has that kind of fed into like embracing and discovering and your gender identity and your um and your sexuality and you know building a life around around that as well so my sexuality for me was fairly obvious from the time I was young um but I actually like I still had a very binary concept of sexuality it's like you can be either straight or you can be gay like I had no concept of like a gray area or any like concept of like there being a middle so really when I was a teenager I very much noticed I was attracted to other girls and so I was just like well you must be gay then. And I'm like, and we're never going to tell anyone ever. Um, because by that point, I had recognized that that wasn't something that was very uh, socially accepted, you know, within within the church and within my family. Um, but as I've, as I got older, and once I kind of started to realize, like, I do have very black and white thinking, you know, it's, there, there isn't really an either or. If you're like attracted to both, then that that can be a thing. You know what I mean? And so I was like, I slowly started to diverge from, well, I'm a lesbian to, you know, not all the time. Like that still is maybe a preference for me, but that doesn't mean that it's a, it has to be a rule. You know, I can allow myself to seek out uh, connection or allow different types of connections to happen naturally instead of saying, ah, well, you know, because I kind of created a rule for myself. We're only attracted to girls. That's the only thing we can be attracted to. And I would kind of dismiss any other information that might be coming in about my preferences. Um, and so I think realizing I was autistic and starting to kind of take apart some of the rules and the ideas that I had created for myself to kind of structure my environment really did lead me to be to ultimately identifying as as bi um because for me I I don't know that necessarily like I don't think that like genitalia or even like somebody's appearance has that much to do with it. I really think it's more about their energy or like the way we connect and the way that we resonate, even if, you know, obviously some people are just attractive, you know, and you, you can notice that, but that doesn't necessarily mean I would want a, like a romantic connection with like someone who was, that I found attractive even, you know? So Allowing for some of that nuance, I think, <clears throat> I think helped a lot um, in terms of just my relationships um, and the way I, I formed different relationships and everything like that. Um, but in terms of gender, I really didn't start questioning gender at all, really, until I met um, some, some like trans women. Um, and started listening to their experience and realized, oh, like, womanhood's actually, like, an important concept to you in terms of how you see yourself. Because for me, like, womanhood was always, like, more of a, 
a performance. It was part of, you know, if I was going into a situation I was masking, you know, I would make sure my hair looked a certain way. I would make sure that I was dressed in what I considered to be feminine and appropriate, but that definitely wasn't my default. Like I would use that as kind of a shield, you know, almost to keep other people a little bit at arm's length. Like you're, you're meeting me, but you're not really meeting like me because the, the most genuine form of myself isn't, you know, isn't this person. And I kind of realized, I started to realize and kind of deconstruct my concept of gender after just, you know, hearing other people's experiences with it. And I was like, oh, I guess like I don't actually have a gender that I really align with for myself. You know, I can see it in other people and I recognize it's important and I can kind of try to try to reflect whatever I think is appropriate but that's not the same as that being an identity, you know? So it definitely, it was kind of a, it was a weird journey. Like the, the sexuality part felt natural. You know, it was more of just a like, ah, like I just need to be less rigid, you know, in my thinking about sexuality and about relationships in general. Um, Whereas the gender, I was just like, it almost felt like realizing, you know, I compare it to like, if somebody that you care about gives you a gift, and you don't like it, but you still have to keep that gift and have it like on display somewhere just in case they come over to your house. And you can be like, I still have this thing you bought me, I care about you. And I recognize you care about me too. And I was kind of treating gender presentation like that. I'm like, well, when I'm around people that I know expect this gender of me, then I'm going to, I'm going to put that on display for them so that they know, like, I, I understand, like, what's going on, you know, or like, what kind of social interaction we're having. But yeah, yeah, it's really, yeah. It's really an interesting analysis of it, like, because it, it really breaks down the, the, this kind of this concept of gender as a kind of a construct, like it's mm-hmm. rather than just what what genitalia you have, right? You know, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, which I've never heard it articulated that well before. And uh, you know, because like I mean, you literally described it like you behaved a certain way according to the expectations of people around you, which was maybe more traditionally feminine i guess what you would say like what what kind of evangelicals or whatever certain people have as an idea of being feminine and then in other places you'd be different and it's it kind of it does kind of really show that a lot of that idea of gender is is a construct it's not about what genitalia you have you know it's mm-hmm. it's identity it's more that it's more identity than than it is about you know what your body can do uh and uh yeah, that's really well articulated <laughs> um well, thank you yeah i'm glad you yeah and i'm glad you found you you discovered that element of yourself and embraced that it's always really encouraging when that happens you know like yeah 
Um, and how did that make you feel actually when you began to when you started to really embrace like your identity and and be and share that with others and be more open about it? How how did that how did that affect you? Honestly, I think that it made me feel a lot less anxious in a lot of ways because fully accepting who I am and what my true like default setting, you know, is allows me to conscientiously embody that more. You know, I and I notice more now if I flip over into whatever, you know, my more public facing mask, where before I didn't recognize that at all. I was just like, I, I thought that was an element of my personality. Like I, I just thought that's, you know, part of who I was. Um, and I would, I would always be so tired, you know, after social interactions, I would just, and I still like, I will just sleep, you know, 12, 14 hours a night, you know, if I'm, if I'm in very like aggressively social situations, you know, I, I need so much rest and being able to kind of see myself for who I really am and start to embody that has really changed the way I interact with other people and allowed me to be more free to not use as much of my energy to try to like appease others or feel safe, you know? Um, and I think also just having more friends, having a group that I feel comfortable around has also really made that shift for me because I, I feel comfortable enough to know that if we're in a dangerous situation, like I have people that can, can help me get out of it instead of me having to kind of like, kind of essentially like perform my way out of like sticky social interaction interactions or things like that. Um, and I do think being perceived as a woman, you know, I recognized it very early on that like some interactions are unsafe and it was always really hard for me to tell which ones were unsafe and which ones were maybe just uncomfortable. Um, but feeling more comfortable in myself and more comfortable with the people that I have around me gives me space to kind of take a step back and assess instead of just immediately going into like, you know, that mode where I have to protect myself. I'm going to be presenting as my most, you know, competent, you know, appeasing feminine, you know, form of myself. Um, because definitely like if I, if I perceive like there's any sort of like danger at all, like, I, I almost go into like a hostess mode. I'm just like, what can I do for you? You know, what what do you need? Do you need a drink? How about you sit down? You know, and that's that's not me. You know, <laughs> it's like, but you know, people who don't know me well very much think that that's my personality. I'm just this. I'm this helper. I'm you know such a people person. And then people who know me well is just like, no, like I'm I'm a very kind person, but you know, if I'm comfortable with you, I'm not going to go out of my way to like make you feel like, you know, like I still, to some extent, I still am like, you know, I want people to feel comfortable in my home, but you're not going to feel like you're at like a 
bed and breakfast or something like that. You know, it it feels more natural, you know, and just more like you, you're another person, you know, within my family unit and the way I would treat somebody I consider as, you know, like someone who's close to me. Um, but yeah, so... Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing. It's uh yeah. Um I'm being so vulnerable as well. Um so thank you. Uh, what is just to feel like to finish, I guess, what is it what's one thing you've learned on your journey that you'd like everyone else to know? I think just that, you know, where wherever you're at right now, you know, to not feel like you need to be better or be somebody than, than the person that you are right now. Because, like, there's definitely been points on my journey where I really did, you know, wish I was, I was someone else or I was somewhere else. Um, and... I think it can be really hard when you're struggling with different types of chronic illness or, you know, any, any type of, you know, identity issues, especially with some of the very concerning things we have going on right now in the United States with um, anti-trans bills being passed and everything like that, that it's hard to feel like you're enough. You know, it's hard to feel like you can do enough, but I think what you really have to embody is that just by, you know, being alive, being present, living, living your life and, and being around, you know, the people that you care about, like you, you are enough in and of itself without, without any, anything else. Hmm. I love that. And I agree completely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And where can people find you on um, online? So for my Twitter, um, I'm Owlet Amber K. Um, and then on Instagram, let me, let me check, but I, my professional Instagram is a as a tarot account, and it's Intuitive Tarot with Amber. Um, so, if you guys, if anyone wanted to follow me, and just you know, I I usually pull tarot spreads and things like that. Um, so, if anybody was interested in in following me about that, and maybe seeing what I'm doing over on my business account, that would be pretty cool. Excellent. Fantastic. And do yeah, I follow all those accounts, so give those a follow. Uh Amber is wonderful as you've probably seen today. So uh yeah. Um thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. Um it, it uh it really is in, inspiring and encouraging. So uh thank you. Awesome. Well thank you for having me. Yeah, honestly, anytime. Well, I'm, I'm sure we could have you back sometime. That'd be uh That'd be great. Yeah. We could probably talk about tarot or 
anything. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Awesome. And, and thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>